Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. Brad, it's another lovely day, another day for a podcast. How's everything going? Things are going great. I get to talk to and record with you. So that always puts me in a nice and jolly mood, Steve. All right. I'm glad I make your uh, your day so jolly. Well, today we are going to talk about the past two weeks for us here at The Growth Equation. Um, unless you've been living in a cave somewhere, you probably know, or unless you're new to The Growth EQ, welcome. Um, but if you're not new to The Growth EQ, you probably know that my latest book, The Practice of Groundedness, launched a little over two weeks ago. And it's been a pretty hectic two weeks. And um, we've gotten a lot of notes from listeners and fans wanting us to dive into what the process of launching a book is like for us and how we try to practice what we preach when we do so and the challenges that come up along the way. Yeah, you know, I'm really excited about this because this gets at a central tension, a tension not only with launching a book, but a tension of you preach, you know, X, Y, and Z, your values are X, Y, and Z, but then you have this thing that you're financially dependent on, all this other thing that is pulling you somewhat away from the values or the uh, the items that you preach. So this isn't just about book launches. This is about, you know, navigating this really difficult space. So you know, if you care about book launches, this will be interesting. If you don't, this will be interesting because it's going to be able to be applied to, uh, you know, anything that pulls you away from, you know, your core values or, you know, your, the way you want to live or pursue your craft. Love it. So before we get into the conversation, speaking of financially dependent on these things, Steve and I are financially dependent on our book sales. Um, by and large, our book sales subsidize all the work that we do with the podcast and the newsletter, and they allow us in part to keep those sponsorship free. Um, so there are two great ways to support us. The first is to go get a copy of our new book, The Practice of Groundedness, if you haven't done so yet. The second way is the super support, and this is to become a Growth Equation Patreon member. So what does this mean? For between 5 and $20 a month, your choice, you get access to all kinds of exclusive content. We've got a monthly book club where we bring in fascinating best-selling authors live every month to discuss their books. We've got exclusive contents, and you get access to podcasts like this early, as well as podcasts that aren't for the general public. So if you want to support us, get the book. If you really want to support us, become a member of the Growth Equation Patreon community. You can do that by going to www.patreon.com slash the growth equation, and you can read about all the cool bonuses there. All right. So check that stuff out. Well, let's let's dive in. All right. So I, I think before we dive into this tension, let's let's set the stage. Like, yeah, <laughs> what in the world is launching a, a book like? Because it's, it's an experience that I don't think you fully understand until you go through it. So let's do our best to explain that. All right. So here we go. Steve and I's theory or hypothesis on 
successful books is that it is very crucial to have a solid showing out the gate. And that is because we believe, and I'm prefacing this all with we believe because this isn't a fact, this is our hypothesis. We believe that the best marketing for a book is word of mouth if you wrote a good book. And we believe that our books are good. So what we want to do is get as many people to read the book early on so that then the marketing takes care of itself because people refer the book to their friends, to their family, to the colleague. So that's the first reason why we prioritize the first couple weeks. The second reason is in the media hype machine, good publicity begets more good publicity. So if your book is seen as successful based on its ranking on certain marketplaces, if it is being covered a lot in big podcasts or radio shows, or if you're super fortunate and you get on a morning show, or if your book makes a bestseller list, these are all places that folks in the kind of big think industry go to look to fill spots, to have op-eds written, and to do reviews. So between readers driving word of mouth marketing and publicity begetting publicity, there is um, a very large incentive to sell as many copies as possible in the first month. That's why y'all have heard us blabbing about pre-orders for the last month. We want people to get the book the day it comes out, not only because we care deeply about you as readers and we believe in the book, but the best thing for the book is a cadre of people that read it and thought it was good. Yeah, and I think it's important to uh, understand too that Brad and I like writing books. We like putting information out there and books are a great way to take a complex topic, like study it, research it for years, and then distill that information so it's actionable and usable. It's like deep thought. It's not like sending a tweet out into the world and seeing if it's good. Like it's 250 pages of quality that we've gone over several times. But in order to do that, it's like you're in auditioning for your job every single time you have a new book, right? Because your ability to write the next one is dependent on how well this one does. So not dissimilar to, let's say, a director's career and movies, Whereas if they start having flops or thing or movies that don't, you know, make back the investment, you know, um, movie studios aren't going to, you know, hire them anymore, and they're not going to be able to do their job. So the same thing with an athlete, right, Steve? Too like I'm thinking of right. a free agent in particular. Right, exactly. It's you're you're. It's like it's like being an athlete. Only you're on a year to year contract. Right, <laughs> you're There's, always a free agent unless yeah. you get that coveted multi book deal, which we haven't yet. Yes. So it's almost all, you know, for most people, unless you're big time, big time, it's it's a year to year. You're always a free agent. You're always in that year where you're trying to prove your worth. Right. Which in athletes, you see it all the time. It's a contract year. And what happens? They play crazy good so that they can get that next contract. Right. Yep. And the money is really good in publishing. But by really good, it doesn't mean filthy rich good. It means it allows us to do the newsletter for free, do the podcast for free, be 100% member supported, even in Patreon. The most that we're charging anyone 
with the annual discount is $200 a year, although our vast number of subscribers pay between 50 and 100. And it's not like we have that many. So the book really subsidizes all of our other work. And I think that's real important too, because if we were charging a lot of money for our newsletter, this podcast, um, if instead of trying to like actually bring value to social media, we were just retweeting memes, then we'd have a lot more time to do other things. But we actually have made a pretty distinct choice that we are coaches and writers. And we turn down a lot of speaking gigs. We constantly are turning down sponsorship and partnership opportunities because we want to focus on coaching and writing. And that has to subsidize everything else that we do. So it's not like, a, oh, feel bad for us. But I want to explain that this, you know, if you saw Steve and I and how we live, this isn't like a filthy rich book advance. This is a be able to live in a nice community and, you know, eat meals and pay our mortgage and hopefully save a little money for college for the kids. Yeah, exactly. And then that's what we're trying to do here is just, again, set the stage for what it's about. Um, so it matters. That's yeah. the stage. It matters a lot. <laughs> so you do this pre-order campaign, which again, unless you're brand new to the Growth EQ, you've probably heard us ask you to pre-order the book ad nauseum. So for those that did, thank you. And pre-orders go a long way um, because as I said, readers get the book on day one and those are banked sales. So in any like reporting metric, so New York Times, Wall Street Journal, National Bestseller, um, Amazon, all the lists, they look at week one sales and those pre-orders count for week one sales. And again, whenever we talk about lists, I want to be clear and I can only speak for myself. I am not enlightened yet. I still have an ego. If I'm being totally honest, I think making the list for me is probably about 10 to 15% ego and then 90 to 85% if the book's on the list, I think it will get a lot more publicity than if it's not. So we're going to talk a fair amount about list on the show. There is an ego doubt. No, no doubt. There's an ego element. It's like, oh, you're a New York Times bestseller. That's a nice trophy. I think the first book, I was probably a lot closer to 50% ego, even if I said I wasn't. I think now I've kind of realized that those lists don't really mean shit in terms of how many people are going to read your book in the long term, but they can help a book out of the gate which as we discussed, actually does matter for the long term. And the other thing I'd add in there is that pre-orders and then first week orders also help with book availability. Because even though you know a lot of people buy books on Amazon, the vast majority, et cetera, et cetera, it's still good and helps to have your books in Barnes and Noble and other bookstores. And you know, increasingly those bookstores make their orders and decisions based on, um, you know, what it looks like in terms of pre-orders, first week sales, et cetera. They'll stock your book. They'll place it in better places. They'll have more copies, uh, which all matters because availability helps, you know, spread the word. Yeah. All right. So I think something else to give context here, and this is all um, inside baseball, but we get feedback that y'all find this interesting. So every once in a while, we get notes from readers and listeners asking why we send people to Amazon. And it is true that Steve and I do not love Amazon. Amazon has some benefits, but a lot of cost to communities. One of those costs is it makes it really hard for booksellers. 
because Amazon tends to drop prices significantly. So it is my own personal policy that I only buy books from my local bookstore unless they're out of stock. And if I can't get them ordered in like a week or two and I need it, then I'll buy a book from Amazon. But a lot of people are price sensitive when they buy books and the extra couple dollar discount actually matters. And we don't want anybody not to read our book because of affordability as an issue. The second thing is we feel as authors, there's only so much that we can do. And if publishers are listening, and this is something that I think, you know, one of us or both of us will address in the future in in longer form, everybody complains about Amazon, but the publishers don't do anything. So if you think of Amazon as this big shark in the book selling industry, and the big four publishers or five, however many there are, they're like four or five barracudas. And then every author is an individual minnow. And if a shark fights four or five barracudas, the shark could lose. But if a shark fights a million minnows, the shark just swallows them all up. And the publishers are telling us authors, minnows, well, don't send people to Amazon, send them to you know Barnes and Noble or your local bookstore. But what happens is most people don't buy books from any other place than Amazon right now. And our publishers don't give us advances based on how many books we sold through Indies or Barnes and Noble. They gave us advances on how many books we sold. And I want to be really non-judgmental. I have my own reasons for supporting my local bookseller. There are other things that I do that probably support big corporations when I could go small. So please, 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 this is judgment neutral if you're listening. And we have data. When we do offer the book through multiple venues, and this is over like an N of over a thousand pre-orders, over 96% go to Amazon. So the vast majority of people buy books from Amazon, which means if you bought the book, you probably bought it from Amazon. Totally fine. Why? Because it's a lot cheaper and more convenient. Why? Because Amazon undercuts pricing of booksellers. Why? Because publishers don't do anything about it. And I've actually had this conversation with my publisher, and they cite all this FTC stuff and anti-collusion. And it, it makes me, I guess, a little bit happier to know that this is on the mind of publishers. And at least my editor realizes that an author is in between in a rock and a hard place. And if anyone's going to change this, it's publishers. Um, so that was a little bit of a side rant, but there's the inside baseball. I personally don't love Amazon, but a lot of people get books from there. I hold no judgment. I just want people to read my books. And I don't think it's on me or Steve to change that because we're just minnows. I think it's on the big four publishers to basically say, hey, we're going to start charging Amazon 40 bucks per book and maybe they'll stop buying books. Or depending on what the anti-collusion rules are, just stop selling books to Amazon. If you stop, if every publisher stopped selling books to Amazon, this problem would go away. <laughs> All right. Um, thanks for that little rant. But it's important because we get asked that question all the time. And, you know, as Brad explained there, like we have strong feelings on it. But at the end of the day, like we can't control uh, right. And I, and I also sometimes will stick up for readers and people that buy from Amazon. Um, and, you know, these questions come from, I think, well-meaning people. But still, my guess is the conversation would be different um, if it were in person. But sometimes when I get emails like that, I want to respond, well, are you a vegan? Like, you know, are you morally through and through perfect? Um, and in the world we live in, I don't I think I think a bigger crime is not reading than buying a book from Amazon. Yeah. Exactly. You know, you want the books and you can't ever, you know, people have different, uh, different variations of financial security. So a couple bucks here and there could actually 
make a big difference for them. So it's understandable. All right. So one more thing or convenience. When my kid was between zero and 12 months, I bought a lot more books from Amazon than I would have liked because I can literally do it with a click and it's there the next day and I'm sleep deprived and I got nothing going on. Now, again, that might exist because Amazon has all this power, but it's not on the minnows to change that. It's on the big publishers to change that. All right. So anyways, we've covered why pre-orders matter, why week one and really month one sales matter so much. We've covered when we talk about lists that it's a portion ego, but also a lot of it is like just that's where the industry goes to try to gauge what books are going to work. And it has downstream effects. And we talked about why Amazon is an outsized player, um, certainly for us. And let's be honest, for most authors, unless you're like Barbara Kingsolver or Jonathan Franzen, um, even someone like a Malcolm Gladwell, my guess is sells most of his books through Amazon. All right. So we've covered all those topics. Why don't we jump into our approach, right? And why, why, you know, we went over pre-orders, why they matter. We went over week one, first month. We talked about a little bit how our approach is, you know, get the book in as many hands as possible. I think the other thing that we need to point out here is based on experience, um, you know, we're what I would call maybe a medium shop, you know, small to medium shop. It's me and you running the growth equation. I have some a little bit of help elsewhere, but it's it's us doing this work, right? And the success of our book really depends on our ability to market and get get it out there. And what is different, I think, than let's say the movie analogy we used earlier or you know, even big time um, people is that when it comes to books, you transition from author to marketer. Because if you do not market your book, no one is. They're like, if Brad and I, you know, if you and I didn't do anything, (laughs) like... (laughs) My guess is this book would have sold 90 copies in the first week instead of like the 6,000 that we're looking at. Right. Because it would be the publisher like sending out a tweet, sending out, you know, this, maybe an email from whatever, whatever different publishers have different levers they pull. But it wouldn't have gotten, you know, you know, the sales that we got or the exposure that we got. So it's really dependent and reliant on you. Yeah. And a lot of people think that just because you get a deal with a big publisher, you're not going to have to do like the marketing work. And that's not true. Publishers are stretched thin just like everyone else. We've been really fortunate at our old publisher, Brianne, at my new publisher, Mary Kate. Like we've worked with great marketing pros and they've got like 30 books that they're publishing, you know, or, or, or I don't know if that's an exact number, but a lot of books at any given time. So we've had great experiences with getting collateral. Like you probably noticed that, you know, our Instagram feed suddenly the quality got really good because Steve wasn't making the graphics or I was posting infographics with my tweets Um, or there were like really nice images of the book in our newsletter. That all comes from our publisher and that stuff helps a lot. But the publisher's role is not to reach your fans because they're your fans. And you see this. All the big publishers have a gazillion followers on Twitter. If they tweet, like, here's our new book, maybe it'll sell three copies. 
If me or Steve tweets, here's our new book, and it's actually our new book, it could sell a thousand copies. So this isn't like a knock on publishers. I'm not just saying this to cover my ass. Um, They're stretched thin, and there's structural reasons that people don't want to listen to what a big corporation tells them to buy. They want to go directly to the artist, which is precisely why it matters so much what Steve and I do and what our colleagues that also have large platforms do. So if you think of it like this, Penguin Random House says, buy my book. Maybe it'll sell a handful at most, even though they've got 4 million Twitter followers. Um, Dave Epstein or Amelia Boom or Rich Roll says, buy Brad's book. That'll probably sell a handful plus copies because that's an individual person that people know and connect to and trust. Me or Steve tells our own following, our own audience, buy the book, and now we're, we're selling hundreds of copies. So the first week is really a growth EQ plus friends operation. Yep, exactly. Can I add <laughs> two more things, Steve, before I shut up? I, I feel like I'm the one giving all this context because I'm so fresh off it. There are a few game changers that make it a little bit less important what you do. And my latest book got none of these game changers. So what are those? If you as an author write a book that can help people with some element of their life and you get asked to come on Ezra Klein's show, his podcast, and you give a good interview, that will sell a ton of copies of books. Ezra Klein didn't ask me on his podcast. I wish he would have. Maybe he will in the future. I really like Ezra Klein's podcast. It's probably the hardest podcast to get on, and that's probably why I like it so much. The second thing that can be a game changer is getting on um, a podcast like Joe Rogan. So a podcast that is in a parallel space to ours, but not someone that we really respect and someone that if they heard us talk, probably wouldn't want to have us on. Um, we are not getting put on like the Fox News podcast to go sell books. So we don't have that going for us. And the third thing that can be a game changer is getting on one of the major cable morning news show. So Good Morning America, USA, um, what is it? USA, see, I don't even know the name. In any event, those are really hard to get on. We have yet to be on one of those. So even if we were to get on one of these things, the Fox News thing is zero chance, but the other things, we'd have a chance to, to do big without our own effort, but I still think we'd put in our own effort. But I can tell you as an author, when you're sitting there and Ezra Klein says, you know, like the book, but we're booking out six months and it's not going to fit right now. And the morning shows ghost you. Well, then you kind of look at, in my case, you look at Steve and you're like, oh, I guess this is going to be on us. <laughs> Yes, a Brad and Steve operation. And I, I should be clear, too, that a lot of this is is luck, right? Is you get lucky on who replies to your pitches for podcasts or newspaper or magazine articles or TV shows. And yes, there's some skill to it. And do you have a name and all this stuff? But a lot of it is luck. And if you look at you know, the example I think I like to give is when we, our first book together, Peak Performance, you know, got selected for an Amazon commercial, like a TV commercial, where they they show the book Peak Performance. They, you know, mention it by name. You can go look on YouTube. I think the commercial's out there somewhere. And we're just like, what? 
you know, and that her- happened relatively early on into the book. We we to this day have no clue how that happened or who- right. And the book became, to be clear, it was ranked the number one audible book on all of Amazon. That- we sold more books than Brene Brown that week. <laughs> we sold more books than I guess James Clear's book wasn't out then. We sold more books than um, what's the American communism asshole Mark Levin that week. We sold a lot of books. Yes. Like it was nuts. All of Audible. That's very difficult to do. And it was all thanks to this like piece of luck. But this gets back to our theory. So why did they choose that? We have no idea. But the story I like to tell you know, myself is that someone in some position of power at Audible or the company that creates the com- commercials like read our book and it was doing relatively well on Amazon or listened to our book and said, hey, this is really good. I'm going to put this on there. So it gets back to you have no idea who's going to read your book. But if you can get that spread going and that momentum going and getting it to as many people as possible, then you have a chance to connect with somebody who has the ability to amplify and get your book to new audiences and get get it to new exposure. So what Brad and I, our strategy is, is as we said at the beginning, if we can get exposure, get as many people reading it as possible, and we did the work to write a good book, then hopefully word of mouth, but also it increases your chances of these like one-off lucky situations where it puts your book in a new audience. And we're not even talking about just, oh, get the luck of being on a audible commercial. Sometimes someone reads your book somehow and brings it to like an audience you never thought about. I mean, uh, Brad jokes about the Fox News thing, but peak performance got picked up by who was it? It was uh, Newt Gingrich's daughter or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it was, it was like some, I think it was Newt Gingrich's daughter. It was a hardcore Republican daughter. And she wrote a, a wonderful piece about our book and, you know, some Repub- like very conservative outlet, which is fine. It's great. Like we're, gr- we're thankful that our book resonated with people and it found an audience that it wouldn't have in our, our wildest dreams. So... It also just goes to show you that with the right amount of mental gymnastics, you can make anything make sense to you. But I digress. (laughs) Yes, that is true. We are master rationalizers and storytellers as human beings. So anyways, but (laughs) the point is, it's those connections. It's those like giving your book the opportunity to find new audiences and grow. Uh, Because Brad and I know like, you know, we have a particular audience and we can saturate that. But in order for it to grow to hopefully the tens of thousands and then hundreds of thousands of readers, like it's going to need help along the way and things that we can't control, but we can put ourselves in the best position to potentially get some of those, you know, crazy one-off things. Yeah. It's another way to think about this is it's very hard so if you think of a bell curve, if you're listening to this podcast, you, you can probably think of a bell curve. If not, just Google bell curve. It's very hard with a book to end up in the middle of the bell curve. I think you end up either in the far left or the far right. So we have a twofold goal. Our first goal is to make the far left 
as many books as possible. So if we can ever get to a point where we feel like whatever we write will sell at least 25,000 copies because we have 25,000 people that will buy every single one of our books because they are our core audience, then that's great because you can get a decent advance for a book that'll sell 25,000 copies guaranteed. The far right of the bell curve is Barack Obama reads your book and likes it and tweets it. And now suddenly it is a number one bestseller and it's selling hundreds of thousands of copies. That's just an arbitrary example, but these black swan outlier audible commercial events. I think it's really hard to have a medium book because books are either sold to the author's fans. So again, it's very important for us to raise the the floor of who our fans are, or they crazily break out. And you see that in the model of publishers giving advances. Publishers operate a lot like VC firms. They throw 100 eggs at a wall, and if one or two are unicorns, then those one or two subsidize all the other books. Um, And you see that all the way down to to how books perform. So I think an example is our first two books, we'll see what happens with Groundedness. Um, Now we're like really getting into the weeds here. So Passion Paradox and Peak Performance, we think are both really good books. The Passion Paradox, folks argue, had um, a less than ideal title because no one wants to read about a paradox. Perhaps we should have called the book like find your drive or something like that. But for better or worse, they're both good books. The Passion Paradox has sold about 25,000 copies. Peak Performance, I think, has probably sold like 275,000 copies now, maybe 250, but it's over a quarter million copies. The biggest difference were some lucky breaks, at least at first. And otherwise, maybe Peak Performance would have sold 25,000 copies. And if a publisher is listening, that's great because I feel really good saying that, like, you know, I think that even if we write a book that gets no lucky breaks, it'll sell 25,000 copies. That's a good spot to be in. But what takes a book to the next level are getting some of these lucky breaks. Yep, exactly. And, you know, that's that's, you know, that's a good example. There is the analogy I like to use, which you alluded to, is raising the floor and not just focusing on looking up at the ceiling, right? The ceiling, you can't ever really get there or predict how high it will be, but you can raise that floor and then give yourself the best opportunity to get some of these lucky breaks that, you know, take you through the roof. And sometimes as you've seen, as you explained with our past two joint books is sometimes it hits and sometimes it doesn't. And I don't think it has anything to do with the quality of it um, because both are, are good books and people have enjoyed and found them useful and valuable. So what does that mean? Okay. So if you look at, let's dive into the, the, the details of, of how we try to raise this floor. So the first thing that we do that is icky, because a lot of this is icky, is we email everyone that we know that we think might like the book and has a podcast that a lot of people listen to has a blog that a lot of people read or that has a social media account with a lot of very engaged followers. And the way I try to write these emails is twofold. If it's someone else that is an author, they get it. I don't feel as bad. I say, hey, book's out. You know the drill. Any help is appreciated. To people that are not book authors, I am just 
honest. One of my coaching clients, I was bemoaning to him how I had to do this a couple of weeks ago. He's like, time for like the student to become the teacher, like just be vulnerable and say what you want to say. Like, wow, thanks, Nathan. You're right. So I emailed a bunch of people and I'm like, this sucks. It feels super icky. Like, I want you to know that our friendship is more than like more than this. It almost feels like I'm using you. It feels terrible. And I have this book coming out and it doesn't look like it's going to get like game changing media coverage that we discussed earlier. So any help in getting the word out is is appreciated. So you make a list of between 20 and 40 people that fit that criteria and you send them those emails. And as a result, we're on the Morning Shakeout podcast with Mario Frioli. We're on I'll Have Another with Lindsay Hine. Um, our publicist is sending that email to hundreds of people in her Rolodex. So we get an article in GQ or an article in Men's Health. Um, Outside Magazine, where I'm a contributing editor, they come to bat. So we're starting off by, even before the book is out, pitching people that are in positions of media influence that can sell books to cover the book in some way. And I think, much like our prior two books, this book did really well in mid-market. Did we get the morning shows or the Ezra Klein podcast? Not yet. Did we get outside to go full tilt? Did we get good podcasts like some of those I'd mentioned that are kind of like, you know, in between probably the, the 10 to 30,000 download per episode range? Absolutely. And did we get good online coverage? Sure. Wasn't great, but wasn't bad. Now, what's fascinating is we can gauge pretty well how many books are sold when a new article comes out. Because Amazon has this dumbass sales rank, and I say it's dumb because this is where we'll get to practicing what we preach because it's very easy to sit there and refresh it all day, that moves in real time. And you can see like, oh, Steve and I sent out a tweet, and therefore we sold a lot of books. Or this article in GQ ran, and the book moved up this many positions, or it didn't move. Or such and such friend that, uh, I won't even say friend, that's an overstatement, such and such colleague that we won't name, plugged the book in his newsletter, and suddenly the book skyrockets. Um, so what might be interesting to readers is the things that look really glossy often don't move the most books. So coverage in a major online magazine is no doubt helpful for like getting the word out and you're running excerpts, you're helping people. Let's not forget that they're getting to read the concepts in the book, but purely from a sales standpoint, the most helpful thing is either those far right bell curve or basically you and your friends and your colleagues telling people to read the book in some format. So that's what we spent the entire week before the book. And then on pub day, what happens before I turn it over to Steve? And I, I forgot, you know, it's a sign of a good partnership when you don't remember whose frameworks are, are whose. I don't know if this was me or Steve's, but basically, listener, I want you to put one hand up and around your forehead and just hold it flat. That line is you're becoming annoying. Our goal is to get as close to that line as possible without hitting it during launch week. All right. Um, one more thing to add so in there. Tell them how we do that. Yeah. Yeah. One more, one more thing to add in there that I think is important. As you know, you mentioned that excerpts are wonderful and helpful and we really appreciate them. But there's varying degrees of, of you know, what pushes people over the edge to buy books, right? And if you followed us on social media and Twitter, particularly like you see us ask and put links in the in the notes to buy books. The reason we do that 
is because that like direct ass work relatively well with your audience and it feels really slimy sometimes to just play like buy my book whatever but like the way we think about it is direct ass work and we're not just selling something like we are giving or like people are buying something that we we put between three and you know seven years of work into that is meant to hopefully provide value and change them in some positive form. So the direct ass feel really slimy, but you know, especially when you do like 10 of them, but they work. So yeah, have- it's like, come on, like the books between 18 and $27. And now this is like my soapbox. I, as a reader think that any book is the best value. So for me, if I hear about any book that seems remotely interesting, I do not hesitate before buying it. I have to remember, this is friend we got, excuse me, this is advice we got from our good friend Dave Epstein, who's also an author, that most people only read one to two books a year. So for most people, it is a bigger decision. So we also have to get out of our heads there. And again, I'm being judgment neutral. Some people are super into fashion and they hear about like some new line of t-shirt or shorts and they don't hesitate before buying it. I'll take like two weeks to research what t-shirt I should buy. So different people have different tastes. So it's important for us to realize that not everybody just thinks, you know, not even once before buying a book. Some people think twice, three times, four times, including some people in our audience. And that's okay, but that's also why it's so important that we're making this direct ask sometimes multiple times. All right. So let's get into this getting right up to the annoying you know, line scale thing. So let's dive into this. All right. So what Brad and I do is we almost have each other to check ourselves plus look at data to ask, are we crossing that line? Because it's very easy to like just go all out and tweet a billion times and send all this stuff. But let's break it down. First newsletter. All right. For those who don't know, we have a newsletter of you know 20,000-ish subscribers. We send out great, valuable content, articles that we write, you know, this podcast link, articles we find on the web, book, you know, recommendations, all this stuff we're providing providing a value for for free. Okay. And then during the launch time, we send a couple different emails out to our subscribers asking, you know, to buy and telling them why we think it'll be a good deal and giving away, you know, other content so that, you know, hopefully they they are pushed over the ledge and and buy the book. Now, what we do is we try and ride that line on the newsletters of how many emails and asks can we make to people without pushing them over to this annoying side. So Emails, we feel like, okay, you're part of our group, but like this, like we're invading your inbox to a degree. So we try and keep that to a relative minimal, right? We try and filter out the people who have bought the books to not send them multiple emails, the best that we can do, um, given the limited data we have. But we try and filter that out. We try not to send more than, you know, a handful of emails during this critical period um, and we're always checking with each other. I'm saying, you know, Brad, like, I don't know, like we might be getting to this point. 
We look oh, at please. How- I'm always the one telling you we're getting to that point. <laughs> on the emails, though, like you know, I'm there a little bit. On social, we we have the different you know thing, but we're monitoring subscribers and clicks in our emails as best the data we can have, and unsubscribes and that stuff to see if hey, are we pushing over this edge? And then we look at social media as a little different. So social media people have yes followed us but they haven't opted in to you know subscribe necessarily to our emails all this different stuff so social media what we try and do is we we say okay how many tweets or instagram posts or whatever are we giving that have value and then how many are what i'll just call shameless in the sense that they're shameless ass right by the book and we try to find balance between like here's value we are providing because we are very big in our social media kind of you know view normally that's all that we do is provide value like you look at twitter and part of the reason it probably feels so icky is because we don't engage in like the twitter like um just nonsense political fighting moral fighting religious fighting nutrition fighting we just share principles that work we're not promoting our work on Twitter with the exception of when we have a book come out. And I've had people, and I, it's the only reason I'm on Twitter, is I've had people say like, hey, your, your Twitter feed has really helped me. Um, so part of the reason it feels so icky to do what we do is because we don't usually do it, which by the way, for the number of Twitter followers that we have, and this is a humble brag, we have insane engagement. There are people that have like over a million followers that don't get half the engagement that we get. And I think that's because we're not constantly selling shit on our Twitter feeds. Our Twitter feeds are actually useful. So it's like this weird catch-22 that the reason that we can reach people on Twitter is because our Twitter feeds are useful. And when we're trying to sell them the book, it can often feel like then we're doing the very thing that is what we normally don't do. But the story one has to tell themselves is, hey, again, this book, A, is going to help these people. And B is subsidizing all the time and energy we spend writing really good tweets. Yep, exactly. I mean, it's it's that tension that we talked about at the beginning is that this is the part that feels icky and slimy because it goes against our points and our values of why we use social media or anything, for example. You know, we like are very deliberate and we have these conversations on what are we trying to put out in the world and we're trying to put out good stuff and of good value that helps people. And it is very easy, or it would be much easier to jack up our Twitter followers by engaging in the emotional kind of fear-based or whatever you have, have you, um, style, controversial style of tweeting, which might get us more followers, but that isn't the world we want to live in. And that isn't what we want to put into the world. So we don't. Right. And same thing with the podcast. Like we could um, make a lot of money on this podcast if we took on sponsors um, that have deep pockets. But the reason a lot of those sponsors have deep pockets is because they're peddling supplements or technological devices that just don't work. And we don't want you guys to buy technological devices or supplements that don't work. Um so these are the story. This is what's happening inside our head when we're when we're giving ourselves permission to to be a little bit shameless. Um, so then 
you get these great moments that just like reinforce what you're doing. So there's two examples that I want to that I want to give. One is short, one is longer. I'll start with the longer one. So if people ask me and Steve's going to blush, if people ask me what the best part of launching this book was, it was seeing Steve just totally fucking go to bat as if it was his own book. And we said in advance when we made the decision to to go off and write our own solo books that we'd support, excuse me, we'd support each other's books like it's our own. But it's one thing to say it, it's another thing to do it. So the first thing was not that I ever had doubts about our partnership, but every time I've ever gotten irritated editing one of Steve's posts that he didn't take the time to read twice, I will never get upset about that again because this week proved that like Steve is all the way in and just seeing a friend and a partner really step up, probably annoyed people more than I did with his tweets. Um, that was the highlight of the book launch. So it's like, oh, hell yeah. Like the growth EQ, Steve and I, this is the real deal. We got each other's back. The second highlight for me is just random stuff that happens that you have to celebrate and makes you laugh. So scouty guy 1272, if you're listening, we're kind of in the thick of it. I'm feeling slimy. I'm making these direct asks on Twitter. And this guy quote tweets my asks and says, and I quote, I don't even know who this dude is or how or why I found him on this trash fire of a shithole app, but his tweets have helped me and I'm going to buy his book. (laughs) So that was like one of these little things that like you just have to have fun along the way because otherwise like you get into obsessive passion mode and like you really start to obsess over the results. Um, My man, Tony Gonzalez, NFL Hall of Fame tight end. I wore number 88 in high school because that was his number. He tweets about the book. Like these are the things that you like, you can't help but kind of like be amazed and laugh at and and have some fun. Um, Because otherwise it very quickly does become a game of how many copies am I selling? How many people clicked on this link? Um, How many people bought the book? What's happening with my Amazon sales rank? And listen, that's that stuff's going to happen launch week regardless. Um, Much like we wrote in our second book, The Passion Paradox, the goal is for that stuff not to become such a huge majority that it sticks around beyond launch week or that like it sends you into burnout on day two when you've got to last seven days. And that almost happened to me. I don't know if you remember, Steve. You had to give me a pretty intense pep talk. I think it was like Thursday night. Was it Thursday night or Friday night? The book came out Tuesday. I think it was Thursday night. It had been out for three days and I called Steve. and like, you know, we laid it all out there. Like, I think we've done what we can do. Let's just like let it roll now. And then Steve gave me like his uh, his coach Ted Lasso pep talk. So, you know, first off, I really appreciate those kind words. Um, and I would recommend if you ever launch a book, even if you're a solo author, have a have a very good friend or partner as part of it because it makes it makes it a, a lot better because you really do go through these emotional swings of highs and lows. Um that you can't like you can't really control because it's emotionally exhausting doing something that like you know pushes boundaries pushes your your kind of shamelessness to a degree doing things that you don't really like to do but you have to right and i i i think that is the key right there is that it's like it's like uh but you know one of the things that that we saw Brad is that when you got really low, like you, 
I picked you up. When I got really low and tired of it, like you picked me up. And the other thing that I think really helped as well as having defined like time periods. Mm-hmm. Right. We, you, and then we Shane always... Parrish picked us both up on Sunday. Yeah. Shane, that's... if you're listening, um, thank you. Shane Parrish is, uh, he does the very well read for good reason because it's a great newsletter, Farnham Street newsletter. And it was a real pleasant surprise to see him plug the book there. And we were like both reeling. And then we're like, holy shit, like this is going to be great. Right. Exactly. And, and to those, again, inside baseball here, Book launches are always on Tuesday. And, you know, a couple days in, once you've tweeted a billion times, shared on social a billion times, done everything, and now you're on your, you know, whatever repetitive number of sending out another buy tweet or another like link to something or another thread, whatever it is, it can just feel like, oh my gosh, like this kind of sucks. Especially when like, as in our case, we're carrying most of the burden in the sense that it's a, a Brad and Steve, a growthy Q, propping up the sales of this book to keep it high enough on Amazon algorithms, other algorithms to get it out there to people. And we're still doing it. Don't speak in past tense. We're just doing it less. It's like the first week is uh, the first day is sprinting an all out mile. The first week is a 5K. The first month is a half marathon. So our pace of self-promotion has dropped from the pace of a mile to the pace of a half marathon. Yeah, exactly. Like, But the problem is who in, that, who in the world enters a half marathon or a marathon and goes all out the first mile? It's very painful. Right. Because Maybe that's you, a lesson for us. No, it's more it's, it's like one of those ultra races where you have to like do 19 in 19 days. Yeah, it's like you're just going and then you you get and you get to slow down, but you're still you're still in this miserable discomfort of the thing. But like having those checkpoints, right? Where it's like, okay, we're going hard until Sunday and then we get to slow down a little bit. And we're still going hard, but we're still in the race, but we get to ease off the pace so that we can recover a little bit. Those checkpoints are, are necessary. And just like going through a race, like you're going to have these moments of doubts even within things and you got to find reasons to get out of it. And that's where having connection and having a, a business partner, like friend, colleague to like pull you out of that, you know, is, is super valuable and super important. And through that first week, like we went through ebbs and flows of like, oh my gosh, this sucks. And the other person has to be there to coach them out. All right. So now let's talk about, um, well, something that is core to what we coach on and write on and teach that we really had to practice, which is process over results. And I'd say very much on par with being like a international caliber swimmer. Writing a book, the results are pretty definitive and in your face. Swimming, there's a clock on the wall. It reads your time compared to the other swimmers. Launching a book, there are sales numbers. They are published in relation to sales numbers of other books. It is a very results-focused field. The difference, and I'm going to say what makes it harder psychologically, I think, well, being an Olympic swimmer is probably much harder than launching a book. But in this kind of metaphor, one thing that is harder about being an author is you actually have a little bit less control than the Olympic swimmer. Because the Olympic swimmer, you're in control of your own stroke. You did the training. As an author, there's a lot more external stuff that can happen. We talked about those lucky breaks. It's as if like 
you're in a swimming race and you don't know if like suddenly someone's going to like, you know, show up with a tube and pull you for a little while. Um, so you've got the distress of like not really being in control of that much, but also being in control of a lot. Uh, yeah. So how do we not, or maybe, maybe the answer is that we accept that we are going to go a little nuts, but like, how do we practice what we preach amidst this? Um, and the last thing is it's in a media environment that is like a crazy hype machine. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's tough because the results, the amount sold like do matter. But I think what we did to compensate that for that a little bit is set our expectations appropriately. Is, you know, we talked about how many books, you know, we need pre-ordered or how many books we should try and sell or expect to sell. And we didn't set like insane goals. We set goals that were like reachable, achievable, but would take a very deliberate process to, to do and execute on our own you know, without these unicorn events. And I think that's that's number one, is set your expectations appropriately. And that allows you then to do the, execute the process to get to that point and be okay. Like if, you know, you don't get all these, or a bunch of these external, you know, luck or external, I almost see it like Mario Kart, right? Is sometimes you get like, you get the good, um, you know, bonus thing, or you get the one where you're just like, oh, great, man, I got a banana. What in the world am I going to do with this? So, you know, you want to be able to carry as much of it as you can in terms of the process that, that you're unfolding and, and hit your goals based on that. And if good things happen, great. Yeah, I, I think that's it in a nutshell. I think the only other thing that I would add there in, in, just to be explicit, I alluded to this earlier, is just the importance of having fun. Um, take your work seriously, but don't take yourself too seriously. And I think that that was my motto over the past two weeks, and I hope I can keep it that way, which is I'm going to give everything I can to this marketing campaign for all the reasons that we just stated. But one way to detach my identity from the results of it is to just constantly have fun into like embrace those moments in the silliness of it all. And um, when someone big time tweets or shares about your book, instead of your reaction being like, oh, wow, like now I'm like the man or now I'm the woman. Or if you're in between those two genders, now I'm the person. Then the response that I would give is like, this makes no sense. How did this happen? Like they must have the wrong Brad. And I think that, you know, it's a little bit of fake it till you make it. But if you can constantly make fun of yourself and take those things lightly, then you don't develop the big ego. Um, and it's the big ego that ultimately brings you down. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the key. You summed it up there is humor, like keeping things in perspective, not taking yourself too seriously. Like that keeps everything in check, you know. And and I also think one other piece I'd say is like also like do it your way. Like we launch books differently than other people. We look at how they do things. We try and be aware, but we also do it in our own regard. You know, there's some things Brad would do and some things he'd be like, no, that 
I I wouldn't do that. There's some things that Brad didn't want to do, but we did them in our own way. I'll give the example Instagram, right? Brad kept for months being like, Steve, why do we have an Instagram? Why do we have a growth equation Instagram? And we do our Instagram in our own way in the sense that it is essentially, you know, background and some text on it. Why do we do that? Because Brad and I, no offense, like we don't, we don't really like or subscribe to the kind of Instagram, put all your photos of your life on there. If that's what you do and you find enjoyment out of it, you know, that's different than us and fine, go for it. That's how you use it if you want to use it that way. But we don't like doing for that. For us, it would be, let's just say it, for us, for you and I, two people, it would be extremely um, tedious and hard to be posting many pictures from our life and videos throughout the day on Instagram our life already feels enough like a commodity given that we write books and articles with our names on it. The last thing that we need is a glossy magazine called the at Brad Stahlberger at Steve Magnus glossy magazine. Exactly. So we do it our own way, you know, and that Instagram ended up working well. And Brad actually went live on Instagram and figured out how it worked a little bit for, for a week. So Figured out how it worked. I was adding Ice Cube lyrics to our posts. <laughs> Brad became a pro on the gram. But anyways, you know, I tell that story because even if you venture outside of your comfort zone or your expectations, you can still do it in a way that like stays true to what you're trying to accomplish, stays true to like what you have values for. And, you know, your mission as an individual or company or whatever have you. And that's what, you know, launch weeks are are crazy and hectic, but that's what we try and do is we try and find this balance point of, yes, we have to sell books. Yes, we have to get it out there, mainly because we want that. We think it's a good book and I think it'll hopefully change or impact lives. So we got to get it out there. And this is the only way. But you can do so hopefully in a way that stays true to you know your core values and what matters and not go beyond the annoying or shameless line yeah all right so people are probably thinking like how did it all work out and the answer is we don't know yet because the sales numbers are quite delayed the various competitive benchmark and industry movers and shakers and list are also quite delayed we believe that we sold more copies than we thought we would. We executed on our plan to like the best of our ability. And to use a sports example, we feel like we expressed our fitness. So if fitness is readiness for the event, we expressed our readiness for the event during the first two weeks of launch. By the time we record this, we might know whether or not, you know, we have final sales numbers or the book made this list or that. But as we said, Launching a book is also much more than the first two weeks. It's really the first two years. So this is the start of a half marathon, and then it will turn into a marathon, and then it will turn into an ultra marathon. So it's also about balancing the kind of short-term importance of creating that big bolus of book sales so you get good word-of-mouth marketing and the publicity machine but gets more publicity, but it's also about pacing so you can take the long view. Um yeah. So I don't know if there's that much else to add. I think we, we covered it pretty well. Um, 
I hope that it was an interesting chance for listeners to get an inside look at what our life has been like the past little while. Um, I can't help but laugh as I say this. If you haven't bought the book yet, please buy the book. Um, Now you know exactly why we've been asking you to buy the book. It is called The Practice of Groundedness. You can get it hard copy. You can get it Kindle. You can get it Audible. You can get it from wherever books are sold. Um, And uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess we'll kind of we'll see how it all plays out. Steve, what are we missing? Anything? No, I think you covered it. So thank you for, I just want to offer this thanks to everyone who followed, follows us on social media, who subscribes to the newsletter, who listens to the podcast, who, you know, went on this journey with us and put up with some of our getting really close to that annoying line. So thank you. We'll, you know, we'll slowly slow our pace down uh, to get back to regular know brad and steve value uh without as many pitches but as brad mentioned you know if you listen to this whole hour now you know now you know why it's important so if you haven't check it out if you have as we discussed word of mouth is a huge driver so share it with someone who you think might uh find value in it and uh might help them so thanks a lot for listening we appreciate it any feedback feedback always appreciated and uh until next time everybody peace thanks for listening to the growth equation podcast learn more about our work and find show notes at our website www.thegrowtheq.com follow us on twitter at b stalberg and at steve magnus And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.